0: Well, good morning or good afternoon, everybody. This is Brian Buford, and I am joined uh, with my partner Mary Walter. We're the team gurus. This is um, our regular podcast, and I am very excited to uh, speak with today, um, Greg Hanafy I've known Greg for several years. He is uh, bit here in Chicago with me, and, and currently is the associate dean. Um, of the Executive MBA program um, and the Global Network at the Kellogg School of Management. So we are excited to have real and inspired conversation with Greg about teams and team leadership. He's had a really interesting and varied career. Um, in addition to that, most importantly, he's a great guy and a guitar player, uh, which is <laughs> the top of the top. So maybe if we could, Greg, if you could just tell us a little bit about um, your, your education and your career history, um, and kind of how you got to where you are and what you do, and, and take as much time as you need on this first intro question.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks, Brian. And thanks, Mary. It's a it's, uh... Great pleasure to be with you. So, Brian, you hit the nail on the head. I think, I think varied career is a great way to describe it. I um, uh, went to the University of Delaware many moons ago and studied chemistry, um, learned that uh, that was something that was maybe a little bit good at, but um, uh, also learned that the smell of the lab was not something that was helping my social scene. So. Um, I pivoted it early and went to, went to business school at the University of Maryland and uh, spent uh, the first 19 years of my career working for Verizon and some of its predecessor companies that were formed out of, out of different mergers. Um, I think the really uh, interesting piece of that career was when I worked in Prague for a couple of years and then uh, shortly after that, also in Shanghai. Um, and then another pivot in my career where, uh, I moved into higher ed, um, uh, started working at the university of Maryland Smith school of business, running executive education and their executive MBA programs. And in 2013 was, uh, fortunate enough to be contacted by Corn Ferry about the role here at Kellogg, uh, to run the executive MBA global network, which You know, currently uh, we have campuses in Evanston, Illinois, right outside of Chicago, uh, Miami, Florida. And then we have five global partners, university partners that span from Toronto, uh, Germany, Tel Aviv, Hong Kong, and Beijing. So uh, get a little bit of flavor of that global global work as well right now.
0: Absolutely. We're, We're... What, um, what do you spend most of your time doing? I know you're traveling a fair amount, but the, what, what would you say the bulk of uh, your, your, your role is and where you invest your time and your attention?
1: Yeah, that, that's, a, that's, that's a something I have to check myself on almost every day, Brian. It's a good, <laughs> good, good question. Um, yeah, I think as a leader of an organization with uh, team members, you know, if I was honest, I'd say 90% of the time I'm, I'm working with, folks on the team to make sure that the, the, the tasks and the strategies that we're putting in place are moving forward. Um, human resources, human capital elements all fall into that. Uh, if I think about geography, 50% of my time is spent on U.S. and domestic uh, opportunities for us um, and the other 50% global. And then I think um, You know, what we do in the executive MBA program at Kellogg is, you know, the average age of our student is about 38 or 39 years old. Uh, They've already reached a certain level of success in order to be in the program. So I know we might talk about this later, but one of the real uh, the real uh, joys of my job actually is thinking about how do we make the experience for them in the program as rich as possible so they can become better leaders.
2: Mm. That's awesome! Great.
3: Fantastic! What a motivational and and meaningful role you hold today. You know, you've had such a varied career, both geographically with experience and been in different industries. When you look back, what role really shaped how you lead teams?
1: Um, well, I think I think there are actually a couple, Mary. First, um, there was a I, I started working for Bell Atlantic. Uh, out of uh, graduate school, and we merged with. Uh, then it was called Nine X. So for some of us at a certain age, there there were the baby bells. And at that point in time, I my job went from being a mid-Atlantic region role to encompassing uh, up into New England, and it was the first time that the majority of my team actually was not in the physical location where I was working. So uh, without any real training, to be honest, I had to learn uh, about remote leadership, uh, even though I might have been in Boston or New York uh, a couple of weeks out of the month. There's a lot that needs to get done, um, obviously, on a day-to-day basis by a team. So how do you you communicate? How do you inspire? How do do you uh, be there for them, uh, the team members, when you're not around? So I, I think I think even today, I think about that because of the, the global span that we have in Kellogg's Executive MBA uh, network. Um, so that was, I think, lesson number one. Like, how do you lead teams when you may not be there every day? And then I think the second was um, more of a cultural um, lesson. When I, when I moved to China, I was the, uh, the only expat in the office, a team of about 300. And just, um, you know, the, everything I had learned up to that point, um, I could have thrown out the, out the window about leading teams because culture matters first. Um, and I had not experienced uh, uh, the opportunity, or had the opportunity to lead in that kind of a culture before. Mm.
3: So I, I think that's fascinating, but I wanna go back to the first one. Did you develop any tactics or tools to keep engagement and to identify if somebody was off track when you were remote in those roles. Greg, you're right. It's really difficult to get the team kind of aligned and um, when everyone's far flung. So any, any ideas or any thoughts that come to you from how you learned through that to create engagement on a team that's geographically dispersed?
1: Yeah. So good question, Mary. And I, I think uh, time and history and uh, ha- has context here as well. I think at the time we wouldn't be doing something like we're doing today, which is having a clear mm-hmm. video chat while we're recording the audio. Um, so, so the tools available were, were very limited. So the face to face time that I did have had, had to be the most important time I spent with any, anybody. Um, so the ability to focus and listen not be distracted, um, uh, be clear about the direction I think that the, that the team at the time needed to take uh, was really important. If you fast forward to today, I think we have access to so many tools that make it easier uh, in some ways to get that face-to-face connection, even, even though it might be over um, you know, a digital platform. But it doesn't take away from the fact that uh, you really need to focus on whoever you're talking to uh, at the time and, and leave the distractions behind. It's such a complex information age that we live in. Um, mm-hmm. Too tempting for that to happen. So, you know, the tools are different, but I think the lesson for me is the same. That's mm-hmm. Perfect. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's, I think there's no sort of casual time and no throwaway leadership time. When you're remote like that, you really have to lean into every moment and be extremely present. I think that's a terrific answer. And you're right. I think it's still very relevant, even as we have more tools. I'm also curious. I can't let this go. What, what was a surprise for you culturally in China as a team leader? I'm sure yeah, there's a hundred things. Maybe <laughs> <one too. laughs>
1: so I, th- I think um, my advice for folks when I talk about this, I think, I think there are two that come to mind. Number one is, you know, I said you throw everything out, and that's, that's certainly an exaggeration. I think number one is um, understand your own style and how that is, is interpreted and, and also how you might have to adapt. So for me, um, I really enjoy sort of team innovation sessions, brainstorming, brain writing. Um, uh, I'm a big believer that that's, that's a way to pull out the best ideas um, and conflict. We'll talk about this later, maybe too. But conflict is also important. Healthy conflict. Um, and I think stepping in as a leader in a new culture, you have to understand whether people are comfortable with conflict with the leader. Um, and for me, I expect it and had expected it. But in the culture uh, in China at the time, I'll say I'll put caveats around that too. And at mm-hmm. the time, it was it was not accepted so i had to adapt it wasn't so much everybody else had to adapt i had to adapt and i think the second thing is that uh make sure you know and understand who who are going to be your confidants because i think that's also important when you go to a new country or a new culture um who who can you trust Mm. and does everybody else trust them so Mm. it has to be almost the Uh, you know, a triangular set of relationships, because Mm -hmm. uh, one mistake I made is trusting somebody that not everybody else trusted. And, um, you know, it took me longer to build trust with the team uh, when I was there.
3: That's a really interesting answer. And it makes sense to me because some of the nonverbals that you're reading are different. And you might not catch on that uh, you're meeting either resistance or have a trust issue or that a team member isn't as respected as you thought they were as you would in your own culture. That's terrific advice. Right. Thank you, Greg.
0: Yeah. So Greg, I'm, uh, I'm curious. So let's say if Mary and I were to interview all of your direct reports now, and we were also to go back and interview all of your direct reports from your very first manager job, what do you think your direct reports would say, uh, would be the way in which you've changed most as a leader. I mean, obviously, you've changed in many ways and you've learned new things and mm. you've grown capabilities and skills and their different roles, but all things being equal, how have you changed the most?
1: Uh, you know, I, I think that's a great exercise, by the way. So uh, <laughs> I, I can give you, you <laughs> want to go back and fact check, but. <laughs> um, I, I think if I had to answer it, I'd say I, having the confidence to be able to hire uh, or understand who you're inheriting on the team and, and are they good people? So I, I think a lot of times in hiring and recruiting um, um, and developing people, we, we focus a lot on talents and skills and competencies but what I found over the years is, is there's something about passion and something that's in people's guts um, that can make them really strong team players. Um, so I, I think uh, there's nothing against you know, assessments and asking the right questions, especially, I think, behavioral questions. But if you find the right people um, and if you can develop Folks in the right way. If if they're inherited into your team, I, I think I found more confidence in being able to do that than in, certainly when I was a new manager. Um, you know, that being said, I, the uh, it's it's a I would say a lot more art than science as well because you know people also have to react to my style. Um, I think I think there's. Uh, We had an executive speaker come in at one point, Jim Parker, when I was at Maryland, and he was the CEO of Southwest Airlines uh, during 9-11. And he wrote a book called uh, Do the Right Thing, which is about how Southwest Airlines thinks about their employees. And uh, if you do the right thing, then customers will follow and profits will follow after that. Um, So I think the way Jim... Described it really crystallized for me is is if you set the right tone and you have the right people because that matters too. it's a it's it's a two way street. Um, Mm -hmm. Good things will follow. So I I think. I think that confidence and understanding how that works uh, is is a big difference for me.
2: Absolutely.
3: I have passion. I like that mantra.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Great. I'm fascinated by your career path. You know, it's a, it was an interesting switch into executive education. What motivated that transition?
1: Really, I had to find a job, Barry. Um, <laughs> 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 um, you know, uh, uh, I'm joking a little bit, but it's it's I got to a point in my career and um, we were living in Shanghai, my wife and two kids. Uh, We had been there about four and a half years, and about three and a half years into that, the company Verizon decided to sell the business in Asia. So uh, I worked with them through the through the sale and and the due diligence, et cetera. And then, classically, like a lot of people, uh, probably a lot of your listeners, um, you start to ask the questions of, well, what's next? Um, And of course, I did all the sort of evaluation of stay in China, work for somebody else, stay with Verizon, move back to the U.S., and I made the decision that mm-hmm. it was time for me to, to move on, and I felt like there was more that I could do and, and, uh, and give. So, um, I, was, I was fortunate enough to have a bit of time uh, leaving Verizon and separation package, and I really thought about transformational skills. Like, what do I have that could be used in other industries? So that was sort of the starting point. And then what industries excited me? And, um, you know, where did my passion lie? I go, I'll go back to that because, you know, I think that's so important. So the, the transitional skills, uh, you know, leading teams, general management, cross-cultural, those all seemed obvious. Um, um, but the passion part of it, I think, was helping people grow, helping um, people understand how to be the best uh, in themselves. I always got, a, a, the, I think, the greatest joy out of having people promoted out of my team to other roles. Uh, and I think all all leaders should take pride in that. Um, so that's what sort of led me into higher education and, and um the University of Maryland at the time, I was fortunate that uh, since I went to school there and when I was living in Asia, they had asked me to do some uh, promotional uh, uh, spots and advertisements. So I sort of had an in. So networking is also important. Um, uh, But the inspiration really came, I think back to your question, Mary, the inspiration came from really thinking about and quite honestly, having the luxury of thinking about uh, what is my passion and, and how do I make that happen?
0: Yeah, I'm struck by how, how reflective and, and thoughtful, um, I mean, and eloquent how you describe that process, but kind of what you went through at the time. And my guess is having time and resources to do that was a treasure and facilitated that, uh, that thoughtfulness and reflection and she she is a delightful, a positive person. She's great um, and very supportive. So I can see that.
3: You know, Greg, I really like the comment too about networking. You know, it's it enabled you to follow that passion. And sometimes, find yeah. with leaders, they tend to get into a, either a role or a company and get heads down to the extent where they're they've neglected that broader perspective and that broader networking and building those relationships. And it, and it seems you know, by doing that, you open doors for yourself later that you couldn't have even seen you wanted to go through at the time. And I do think, you know, devoting some time to building that network is really critical throughout your career and throughout the year, throughout the month that you're working in. I just think so easily, I find a number of executives that gets away from us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, you know, with all the, the pulls and tugs that we have in our lives, both at work and family and, and community and whatever it might be that gives us inspiration and joy i mean networking can be something that you push uh to the back burner uh we you know i learned it later in life quite honestly i i, I did not learn it until uh i got to prague um where um, um you know a, another expat that was living there who um who basically pulled me out of my office to go to lunch like every two weeks. Um, and I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And he introduced me to people. And uh, Because prior to that, I, and I think the culture of where I was in the company at Verizon, it wasn't encouraged actually, which I think is, is a miss. Um, but we talk about it all the time now at Kellogg that the power of the network is uh, so important, and, and leaders' networks um, set you up for whether it's answering a question, a difficult question you might have, or whether it's somebody that you might want on your board um, to when you need that next job. Um, and you should not wait until you need the next job to network. And that, I think that's the most important thing that I've learned over the, over the years.
0: Now, yeah, networking is kind of like um, personal development. When it becomes urgent, it's too late um, in, in some ways. Great point. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. And Greg, you've led um, teams in multiple organizations in higher education now towards the end of your career and in multiple organizations in the corporate world. Um, how are teams in the two settings similar? And what would you see is the biggest difference?
1: Well, I see a lot of similarity. Um, there might be a couple of differences. So number one, I think that a leader, whether it's corporate world, not-for-profit, uh, higher education, whatever it might be, you have to be able to communicate a shared purpose to the team. Uh, I, think, I think that drives alignment. I think uh, people want a purpose. They want to understand what they're doing means something bigger than what they are. Uh, and in some spaces, it's easier to do that than others. I mean, I, I totally appreciate that. Uh, the closer you are to a customer or, or to an experience, it uh, tends to be a little bit easier to do that. Um, the second element, I think, is this ability to have consummate trust. And that means that you trust that whoever is on the team or whoever you're working with, is, is th- they're actually doing and their actions are are forward to the purpose that's been defined. Um, Versus, you know, uh, I think where we often get confused is, you know, I trust that Greg is gonna get that work done. That's a little Mm -hmm. bit different because that talks Mm -hmm. about capability. Mm -hmm. In this case, we talk about trust in the sense that um, my intentions are good, Mm -hmm. even if the work doesn't quite meet the bar. Um, and then I think the last is, and I mentioned it before, that there should be some level of conflict. It's got to be constructive conflict. It can't be personal. It uh, can't be uh, can't be born out of bias. But conflict, I think, forces teams to get to a better solution. So being able to encourage conflict in a constructive way, uh, I think, again, works across. Whether it's corporate, not-for-profit, higher ed, so sort of sort of getting the, to that enlightened stage there, I, th- I think the only differences really are in, quite honestly, incentives. You know, in the corporate <laughs> world, there might yeah. be a bonus at the end of it. Um, you know, there 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 could be stock options. You know, you know people have a little bit different perspective, or you know, some kind of uh, you know incentive plan for a sales team in the Mm -hmm. not-for-profit higher education world it's you really have to call on the mission part Mm -hmm. of people now that's also probably why they're in those roles or working for those organizations Um, so I I think in leading teams those are the only that would be the only difference that I really see
0: It's good uh, good to hear that because I my experience has been people are more similar than different and regardless of where somebody's at um, you know, in the world or what organization they, they want feedback. They want the opportunity to grow. Um, they want to know how, what they do ties into something bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, they, they want a chance to use their skills and, and to use what they're good, regardless of, uh, of where they're at.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree
0: with that. Yeah. Greg, you described
3: some terrific behaviors and values. I'm curious if you can tell us about a team that you led that really embodied that, that you, know, you look back and feel like that was a team that, that nailed it and was truly a high-performance team. What was that team? And can you tell us a little bit about what made it so terrific?
1: Yeah, but I, I, this is gonna sound all too altruistic, uh, I think, but uh, I, I think it's really the team I'm with now. Um, I get to work with very, very bright people who are mission-driven. You know this this ideal that um, we get to lift up people, better leaders than than uh, what they are coming into the program. And I think we also have a unique space in this executive MBA world where where it's really a global uh, view. um, You know, a much-needed global view, and uh, in my mind, in today's today's world. So, yeah, and I, I think it's, uh, it's got all the elements that I talked about before. I think we do work hard to make sure that we have a clarity of purpose. You know, we know why we're here and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, we push each other. Uh, conflict is not to be avoided. Um, uh, it's just there to make us better. And I think the other element of it is while we have, uh, a great reputation. We are not satisfied with where we are. We we want to continually get better, and and I'd say that's that's something that is not always easy to do. Like um, everybody wants to celebrate success. Everybody wants uh, to understand that their contributions, as Brian said, that they really matter and their skills are are being deployed the best they can. But to constantly strive for something better. Uh, in an environment where maybe you don't get that bonus or additional uh, stock option. I think, I think that's the big challenge, but I, I, I feel really good about this team and, and what we do and how we do it and the respect that, that we all have for each other.
3: It's terrific. I, I hate yeah, to say, uh, should all of our teams be so lucky to get us later in our, growth as a leader, because we've typically figured some things out. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, you talked about conflict a few times, Greg, any ideas? I, I think I agree with you. I know Brian does too, that it's critical to raise the IQ of the team and to raise the results of a team. And it's very difficult, I think, to get productive conflict. Any tips for leaders of, that you see or that you use to create a safe environment so that productive conflict will come out?
1: well um you know we talk a lot about this in the program here and and I get to get to do a little bit of lecturing on it um so I think it's it it really does start with if you don't have trust you're not going to have uh constructive conflict so yeah, if I go back to that definition of you know, the, the trust we want is that everybody's work and intentions and actions are towards the common goal of the team or the organization, not about uh, whether or not I have all the complete capabilities to do the job. It's about intentions that, that you really have to work on building trust uh, amongst the team before you can probably have a safe space or psychological safety to to, to have that conflict. Um, so one of my favorite tools actually is giving people uh, five dysfunctions of a teen mm-hmm. by Patrick Lencioni and, and have them read it and then run a workshop on talking about the characters. Have you ever seen Martin before, you know, things like that. And, and then running the exercise around um, that Lencioni recommends about, you know. Where were you born geographically? What birth order do you have? And then what's one thing early in your life that shaped you into the person you are today? And uh, that can be one of the most powerful exercises with a caveat. So if you're the leader, you have to also participate. You're not just an observer and you have to authentically be vulnerable. I think this is one of the, One of the key things in leadership today that um, whether you're talking to millennials or whether you're talking to people in their mid career, you have to be authentically vulnerable and, and, and show people that there's a, but you have your own, I guess, mistakes and burdens and uh, you carry just as much weight on your shoulders as they might. Um, So, Maybe, maybe a bit of a long answer there, Mary, but I, I think it, it goes back to this question of trust. If you don't have uh, consummate trust amongst the team, then it's really hard to have positive constructive conflict.
0: Wonderful. So I'm, la- I'm laughing, Greg, because um, the, the two of you are both very accomplished um, uh, in your fields, you and Mary. And I was, Mary loves that particular exercise, and so if the two of you <laughs> like that, there must be something there. Uh, I've done it a couple of times, but Mary, that's one of your go-tos, right? Uh, yes. That's really you find feel, very helpful. I'm I I
3: love to share with our listeners, but it is one of our trade secrets. I feel you know I feel yeah. like okay, so okay. Yeah. just yeah. Um, I used it last week. I used it the week before with yeah. And yeah,
2: it's
3: remarkable. The level of empathy it gives you for each other and, the, and a much deeper understanding and just starts, I feel like it starts to open the door to future conversations to understand each other in that level. And Greg, I absolutely agree. I always make the leader go first. Yeah. And I always prep them about um, being willing to be vulnerable. When that happens, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's truly remarkable. It seems like such a simple exercise. And I've seen it move teams. Um, that you couldn't get them there in a year, literally, of working together. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm glad you brought it up. I just think it's a terrific exercise.
0: You know what's interesting? I've actually heard that kind of exercise criticized by a couple of um, team experts. Um, you know, basically saying that disclosure and isn't isn't always necessary, and that you know other factors are more important, but. Um, but I, I disagree. I think, uh, it, it, especially if the leader is prepped well and they model the way, it can be a, a really productive and positive sharing. That's not just you know sharing for sharing's sake, but it, it's really meaningful and, and can set the tone. Um, that's, yeah, yeah, and I, I
1: I I also agree. It's a go-to for me. The other thing I add onto it is. Success over the longer term in that environment also means that it's not just a, a one-day event. That yeah. you, as a leader, accept the fact that you've opened yourself up and, and you're vulnerable in that situation, but you also have to be willing to, you know, be ready for the next day or the day after, or the month after, or the year after to to listen, right? Yeah, and, and I think I think that's I, I've seen the exercise work but the longer term uh, yep. experience failed if you if you don't continue to have the same authentic
0: style
3: right great
0: yeah any any team offsite or retreat it's a process not an, an event and and arguably what happens between the team offsites over the course of 6 months or 12 months is much more important than what happens during the offsite itself
2: yeah yeah
0: yeah, yeah. So, Greg, uh, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight and looking back, um, can you identify, like, a mistake or a misstep that you made in leading teams that kind of resulted in a really important lesson and, and insight for you um, as you think about your development?
1: Well, we're we're in this theme on trust that I, I think, um, you know, there's probably... Many examples over the years where I I just did not understand it, and um, you know I don't want to harp on it too much, but I think either um, I felt like uh, you know I, I maybe let my ego get too far ahead of me that you know I knew what I was doing and why wasn't the team following, um, and um, you know I, I I look back on it now. Like you're saying, Brian, with 2020 hindsight, and it wasn't about them; it was about me and not understanding what it really takes uh, to get teams to move forward. And, you know, you think about, hey, we're all in this together. We we all want to. Um, you're all competitive at some level. We want to achieve. Um, so I, I think not understanding the trust equation um, is is one of the big yeah. ones. I think the other one is is the element of every individual has their own. Set of motivations and um, they can be very different even on the same team. So, some people are motivated by money, some people are motivated by praise, some people are motivated by the fact that um, they want to leave at five or six or whatever the hour is and be home. Um, And that's great. You just have to understand it as a leader. And then, how do you work with that individual to motivate them? Because if you apply one approach to everybody, it's, it's never going to work. So I I think getting a little bit deeper and understanding uh, where people are coming from and, and how you can get the best out of them is, is also a lesson that took me a while to learn.
3: Greg, when I think back on my business school education, I would say that team leadership was um, not dealt with the same rigor as the, as accounting or finance um, or you know, international law. So I, I just think there was an opportunity as I look back, certainly there. I sense that you approached this um, pretty deliberately in your executive education program. Can you tell us a little bit about how do you address that through team leadership, through the executive education?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so it's, so like I said before, we're, we're sort of blessed in the fact that we've, we've got people you know, average age of 38, 39, you know, it goes all the way up to some people in their, in their fifties. So these are people who have achieved some level of success in their own right. And then you put 60 to 75 of them in a room. And what have you got? Oh my gosh, you got all these high achievers. And, um, now, now they're in this environment where they are peers and we force them into study groups. Kellogg's model is uh, very much a team-based learning approach so if you can imagine that you Mary Brian and I are all in a team together well gosh we've all got this great experience and and um, Brian's ready to lead and then Mary but you're ready to lead and then I'm in there and I'm like well wait a minute I want to (laughs) lead so it's sort of sort of Uh, makes everybody realize that at some points you lead and at some points you follow, right? And understanding uh, from a team point of view, um, um, you've got to be ready for that because even if you're the CEO of a corporation, you've got a board to report to, right? So you might be the leader um, of the organization, but you still have a boss or shareholders or whatever it might be. And I think the other element, that we talk about mary is is you have to understand how to lead yourself first before you lead others so this we spend a lot of time on self-awareness and understanding what your strengths are and the fact that you cannot do it all so you have to be able to build teams that fill in the gaps that you may not have that you may not be able to to pull off and of course, you know we, we do that with assessments and coaching. Uh, we provide um, some one-on-one leadership coaching as well. But uh, I, I think the, the crucible really is this study group model mm-hmm. where uh, everybody has to learn at some point they're going to lead and at some point they're going to have to follow. So it's mm-hmm. practiced every time people are together. Um, and of course, then we insert Workshops and and everything else that helped support that, you know, conflict. You know, conflict happens in these study groups, right? Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. So, so we provided a an opportunity for them to debrief. Um, but but it, you know, Kellogg and 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 other schools, I think are Kellogg. I, I think this model has been around for forty years. Uh, um, so the importance of collaboration and conflict in teams, uh, I think mm-hmm. is at the core of what we talk about.
2: Terrific.
0: So Greg, what, um, uh, who is the best uh, team leader that you've ever worked with? Somebody that inspired you and you look to as a model?
1: Uh, <clears throat> Brian, this is where you really wanna get me in trouble, man. Um, um, I've had a lot of great <laughs> leaders over the years. Yeah. Um, so, so for me, it's actually a couple of our students. Um, so a, a few years ago, probably about three years ago, we instituted this, uh, a model within our executive MBA program where each cohort or group of 60 to 75 people, they get to vote for two, uh, ambassadors. And we labeled them ambassadors for a reason, like they're there to represent the culture and the interests of their cohort with myself and the rest of the administration. So um, this particular cohort, which was in Miami, um, uh, elected uh, a gentleman by the name of John John, and that is, that is his name. He, is, he was working at the Pentagon and the Navy at the time. He's now the chief operating officer of a destroyer uh, for the Navy, and another gentleman, Jaime Villes, who was uh, an executive with Cisco, who's now at Amazon. And these two men could not have been more different in their backgrounds and cultures mm-hmm. and history. But their ability to coalesce—you know—a group of disparate people uh, in their cohort and show show leadership uh i think taught me a lot of lessons number 1 um they focused on culture things like um showing respect for everybody you know everybody has an equal voice uh, number 2 that um you know there may be challenges and um, things that aren't working but we're going to figure out 90% of them and the other 10% we'll take to the administration and we'll take to the administration with suggestions for how to change. So I, you know, I, I think it's not somebody I work for, but somebody I work with in this, in this environment that they really exhibited to me what leadership can be about, you know, how they, how they work to build trust and uh, how they exhibited in themselves, you know, the right behaviors to, um, to showcase for everybody else.
0: That's awesome. That is a, uh, a great twist uh, in terms of the response, and, and uh, shout out to those two uh, wherever they are um, yeah. for for inspiring you. That that's great. So so impressive that they focused on culture and uh, equality um, first. That's um, that's yeah. the key.
3: I wasn't expecting that. The student became the teacher. No. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, but I you and, uh, know I think as you know I think sometimes. Um, you take a step back and, and again, I'm very fortunate to be working in this environment. Um, Yeah. get to learn a lot from the people that are part of the program as much as, as much as we try to teach them.
0: Yeah.
3: Right. Great point. You know, I am, I'm so fascinated by the changes happening in education broadly and, and in executive education as well, Greg. Where do you see things going in the next five to 10 years? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but you're right on the forefront of some massive changes, um, both due to technology as well as uh, people's uh, desires and, and learning styles. Where do you see things going in executive education?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good question, Mary. And, and if I was really smart, I'd already have my websites uh, <laughs> push people to, yeah. to you know, hire. No, <laughs> um, but, um, I see it in a couple of areas. I think we live in a in a time and an and environment where uh, we want immediate satisfaction or gratification for whatever we may be purchasing, and you know that goes from home delivery of items within 24 hours or whatever it might be. So, I think especially in executive education and degree programs like executive MBA, uh, participants. Students want to be able to take what they're learning and apply it immediately. So if, if the content or construct is too theoretical, um, uh, I think you're at risk. So you have to be able to deliver education that people, not only they're inspired and, and they learn, but they also understand how to translate it back back to where they work. So, everybody should be focused on that um from a technology point of view yes modalities whether it's online a blended format or face to face i think i think for most uh folks in the executive education space uh and players it's going to matter that there's some face to face um there's a lot of content you can you can gain by um uh, listening to a podcast or Uh, Doing something, you know, visually online, but there's a certain human element that I think everybody needs in order to accelerate careers, accelerate learning, and and development. And I think for us at Kellogg and for others, we just got to be mindful of and experiment with what's going to work. So, uh, and I think the the temptation is also to to follow trends. Um, but I, I think the, the institutions have to be able to balance like us, like how much do you invest in, for example, fintech courses? Um, certainly fintech is a fascinating area, but at some level it's an application of technology in a certain industry versus what are the lessons learned by what's happening in a disruptive nature of of finance for example so so i not like (laughs) not unlike a lot of industries we're going to be facing disruption um and i I think we're in a time of experimentation so the next five to ten years i think are 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 really going to rapidly change the landscape
0: greg um i guess final question from my end Um, what have you learned works or doesn't work when it comes to um, work-life balance? Uh, you work hard, um, but I know that your family is important to you. Uh, what have you learned works or doesn't work in, in that balancing act?
1: Yeah, so this is an area I'm still working on. Um, and it, you are know, we, come, all? We, we all? Are. Are. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll give a shout out to one of our professors here who's a former CEO of Baxter Healthcare, Harry Kramer, and he, he talks about it as life balance because he says work is part of life. So yeah. maybe change your mindset a little bit and not think about trying to, to always balance work with life. Now, that's, that's a little bit of a catchy uh, change to the way you asked the question, Brian, but I, but it's really true. And it's really helped me actually think about, um, you know, work certainly gives me joy and pleasure and that's a great thing. And I, I, and, and hopefully for a lot of people it does, but you can't get too caught up in the fact that, um, it's the only place uh, where you can get that inspiration, joy and et cetera. So, so I think, it goes way back to one of the questions Mary asked earlier about, you know, how do you deal with remote teams? I think this idea of focus. So when you're at work, it's work, focus mm-hmm. on it, do the best you can, but when you
2: leave, put it behind you. Um, I'll admit
1: I look at my email at night, but that's typically of uh, my wife and I don't have anything going on or we're not entertaining or whatever it might be. Um but I think this is it is this sort of discipline of being able to understand when you can when you can focus completely on whether it's work or family or community or whatever it might be.
3: Terrific. Yeah. Really staying present and mindful, I think in both places. Um it's a skill, it's a trick, but if you can do it, I think you're so much happier. Yeah. And yeah, so much more productive when you are at work. Exactly. Okay, Greg, you made it through our questions, but now we're going to get you with some rapid fire here. Are you ready?
1: Uh-oh. All right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, what is the best part of your job?
1: Uh, I, think, I think it's people-centered. Uh, students and, you know, understanding their dreams and aspirations. And stories and where they've come from. uh, I think I think that's really uh, inspiring for me. I think the faculty that that I get a chance to work with here, um, you know, just the sheer genius and and but also their openness to to sharing and uh, they're real people too. And and then I think lastly the team. You know, we talked a lot about that too. I don't take it for granted. You know, both locally and globally, that I've worked on teams that have not been as high functioning as we are. So so I think that's I think the people part is, is the best part for me right now.
2: Terrific.
3: And how about the most challenging part?
1: I'd say keeping an eye on the future. Um, you know, the question of what's going to happen in higher education um, and, and consistently and constantly helping everybody understand that we can never be sal- satisfied. Yes, we should be celebrating our successes, but we always can get better.
3: What's one thing you're most proud of accomplishing professionally this year, Greg?
1: So uh, we, we've been able to celebrate across the globe three 20th anniversaries of partnerships and just having, uh, you know, one in Hong Kong, one in Germany, one in Tel Aviv. And um, I think pulling together people that have gone through the program over that span of time and seeing a very consistent culture. Um, and, and, uh, to me, that's, that's been the most satisfying that I've had.
3: How rewarding that had to feel great. Uh, what's the best advice you've received?
1: The best advice I was, um, it was actually, I think, I think the best and the worst. Um, so it was, um, uh, comment that I was not strategic enough. And it was in the form of some feedback. And why was it the best? Why was it the worst? I think I think I took it personally. I, I thought thought uh the feedback was incorrect. But then it became very motivating for me actually to understand how I had to express how strategic I thought I was, rather than just thinking I was. So
3: yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Sometimes feedback, you know, you gotta think about it as perception, right? Yeah. Sometimes- Behavior that you need to change sometimes is perception of others you need to change. That's very powerful. Uh, What is your favorite thing to do when you're away from work, Greg?
1: So, uh, I think it's really exercise and preferably it's on the beach with my family, but I don't always get to do that in Chicago, um, although (laughs) the beaches are great. Um, um, Something I really need to work on, as uh, Brian mentioned earlier, I'm Learning the guitar, or the guitar is learning me. Um, I, I'd say it's very stimulating, but I don't know if I'm completely enjoying it the way Brian does right now. But maybe someday I'll.
3: Great, you mentioned uh, the uh, five dysfunctions of it. Can you, any other leadership book that's been meaningful for you in the last couple of years that you'd recommend?
1: Yeah, there's actually there, there's two if I could. One is uh, a book by Clay Christensen that came out a couple of years ago called Competing Against Luck. Um, where, uh, and, and we use it a lot here at Kellogg now, both from an administrative point of view, but also with the students, uh, where Clay Christensen really gets into this idea of jobs to be done. So for me, um, I'm, I'm not going to give you a synopsis of it, but for me, it's sort of the new level of what marketing is all about is really understanding your customer and what their pain points are. And the other one, which I think from a personal development perspective, I've gotten a lot out of is, uh, the power of habit, um, by Mm. Duhigg. you know, why we do what we do in life and business. Um, because, you know, if I'm going to change as a leader, I've probably got some habits that I have to break. So understanding how they got there, but then also how do you shift and and how do you make that change? Those those are, those are two that I have read in the past year that I think are really helpful.
3: Terrific. Thank you. So looking back, what advice would you give that new University of Delaware graduate way back in 1984?
1: Yeah, thanks for aging me, Mary. Um,
3: <laughs> I know, I, I thought about not doing it, but I'm like, well, that's about when I graduated. Oh, no, yeah,
1: it's all good. It's all good. Um, I think uh, don't be afraid to, to step outside. You know, the walk, the walk of life that we all have, there, there are many doors and, and windows uh, that will give you an opportunity to walk through or open up. And if you keep working hard and smart, um, don't ever believe you don't deserve to walk through one of those doors. Um, uh, you know, they're there for a reason.
3: Really exemplified by the choices you made throughout uh, your path and, and getting so many interesting assignments and places to live and just opportunities is terrific. And finally, Greg, any last comments or advice on leading high-performing teams?
1: Yeah, so in thinking about uh, this, um, maybe I'll give you a few a few bullets. Number one, I think we talked about it: know yourself um, and what your strengths are, and, and make sure you find complementary team members to fill in the gaps. I think. Two is be authentic and be vulnerable. Um, you know, there are limits to how vulnerable you should be probably, but, but it's important. And continue to walk that walk and, and, and don't just do it uh, in the one-day event. I think also lead with clarity. You know, people want to understand where everything's headed. They need to have that communicated to them. Uh, focus on building trust constantly. Um, and I think lastly, just be ready to give and that could be praise it could be advice it could be time it could be direction Um, you know i I think uh, the best leaders that i've worked for and seen uh, have that ability to be able to uh, know when to give and how much to give and and back to what brian i think said earlier you know we all we all want to feel a part of something and um, that opportunity to to bring all of ourselves to the
2: team or to the organization.
3: Terrific advice. Thank you
2: so
1: much, Greg. Yeah, no, my pleasure.
0: Well, I think uh, I think that does it. <clears throat> Thank you uh, so much, Greg, for your time uh, and flexibility in doing this. I'll share a quick story. I had um, the opportunity to go to a social gathering with Greg and a number of uh, those that work with him at. Um, at kellogg a while back and i i think it was i talked to at least four or five people and it i wasn't asking intentionally but it just came out in the conversation um just how uh, well regarded you are um in terms of the work you do um and uh, kind of adored you are in terms of uh, with both staff and, and faculty and students, all three of them, which are important. So I can, I can see why that is. Um, thank you so much for sharing uh, and being vulnerable and sharing uh, lots of yourself in these questions. And um, I wish you the best of luck. And I think, uh, unless Mary, do you have anything else to add to, for our listeners?
3: No, thank you so much for listening.
0: I think that's it. We're the Team Gurus, and uh, we will see you
2: later.